Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Decoding TV bonus episode. I am David Chen, and joining me today, as he often does for Decoding TV episodes, uh, he is the co-host of Remap Radio and the author of the Crossplay Substack at patrickklepik.substack.com. Patrick Klepik, uh, welcome back to Decoding TV. I made it to the bonus content. That's how you know <laughs> that David likes me. He I has ascended. The- <laughs> you have ascended the ranks. Also, like when I introduce you, I always feel weird because I'm like, it's at patrickklepik.substack.com. That kind of spoils who you are. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's true. I, you, it's could say, you could say crossplay.news. I do have that domain. Oh, wow. Uh, if that makes you feel a little bit better. Uh, and it does forward over there a few seconds later. So whatever, your own personal preference, however you'd like to, David. So what are we doing here today? Well, we all know that the reason Decoding TV exists is because of the paid members at DecodingTV.com. You get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes. We also used to do bonus episodes. So like for Last of Us and House of the Dragon, we'd have bonus episodes comparing the show to the source material. Those were awesome, but here's the thing. A lot of TV shows don't have source material to compare to, or if they do, it's not necessarily something most people will find interesting. So what I'm doing is experimenting with Patrick Klepik on hosting bonus episodes where we talk about something that's in the news or something that's caught our attention recently. Uh, these will be free for now, but eventually they'll be behind a paywall. Uh, and so we'll, we'll we'll kind of have a slow rolling start. They'll be intermittent. Then we're going to try to do them more regularly, uh, still in the kind of testing phase. But today... We're going to be talking about a very interesting article in the New York Times entitled, They Review Movies on TikTok, But Don't Call Them Critics. That's the headline of the article in the New York Times. And the subhead is, on movie talk, reviewers can reach an audience of millions and earn tens of thousands of dollars per post. Critics, they say, are old news. Joining us for this conversation... He is someone who also has strong opinions about this article, <laughs> and he is also the creator of one of my favorite resources for television on the internet, Episodic Medium, at episodicmedium.substack.com. Miles McNutt, welcome back to Decoding TV. Uh, thank you uh, for being here, and I think this is a subject, yes, that is near and dear, I think, to all of us, as we sort of like lived our own version of this circa like, you know, 15, 20 years ago and are now sort of seeing this new iteration in a very different context. And I feel like there's a lot to kind of dig into for that reason. Let me begin by characterizing what this article says. Uh, it, it basically sets up uh, not necessarily a conflict, but uh, the the rise of a new breed of cultural commentators, which it calls movie talk. M-O-V-I-E-T-O-K, uh, on the platform TikTok. They, they post short-form videos. Uh, they reach millions of people. Here is a quote from the article. The article talks about the, quote, dozens of personalities on TikTok who reach millions of people by reviewing, analyzing, or promoting movies. Several earn enough on the platform from posts sponsored by Hollywood Studios uh, through one of TikTok's revenue sharing programs or both to make their passion for film a full-time job, a feat amid longstanding cuts to art critic positions in newsrooms. But the new school of film critic doesn't see much of itself in the old one, and some tenets of the profession, such as rendering judgments or making claims that go beyond one's personal taste, are now considered antiquated and objectionable, end quote. 
why why is this article uh, so interesting to all of us? Well, I think all all three of us are interested in where things are going when it comes to cultural commentary and criticism. Uh, and we all kind of have different elements of those worlds within us. I know, for instance, Miles, you kind of rose up in in the blogosphere, right? Like you you were blogging about TV, um, uh, writing about TV over a decade ago. You know, before this was considered, uh, it, it went from being kind of a fringe sort of thing that was happening to now it's like the the primary way the way you were writing about it is now the primary way a lot of people can tr- consume TV criticism online. Um, similarly, I got my start with podcasts and, uh, they were not put on the same level as print journalism 15 years ago and, and often still aren't Patrick Klepek. I don't know. I think you've always been respected. So like, I'm not gonna, <laughs> well, look, when he, when he started 14 years old, you know, I've yeah. given myself a very long runway where I did all the embarrassing stuff. Uh, yeah. Publicly, before uh, it could all be uh, uh, shared Patrick on Klepek social media, was filming him, him and his friends doing pranks in his backyard. No, wait, that's jackass. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, um, no, so, but I, uh, but I did, yeah. I did film something called aggressive bush jumping, and that was part of my high school talent show that was oh, riffing wow. on jackass. So you're not that far <laughs> off, Dave. Uh, I did live through that arc and personally intersected with it. <laughs> I will say one other thing as as context for this, which is that uh, all three of us at this point basically receive a significant portion of our income directly from readers uh, or listeners or consumers or whatever. Uh, So that means we basically don't need to deal with any of the pressures that the people in the article deal with. Like the people in the article get money from studios, they get money from sponsorships, like, and we do that as well, like, or uh, I do that as well a little bit, uh, but, but primarily my income comes from directly from people supporting me. And I think that's true for for you guys as well. Um, And so we are kind of very much, outside observers of what is going on in this world of movie talk. Uh, and I just wanted to make that clear, like what our perspective was. So uh, the article, I would say, if I was to characterize the article, it is <laughs> feels designed to make old school movie critics mad. <laughs> is what, is what I would did. say, right? And it did. And it, <laughs> and it did. And it did. And people uh, like old school film critics were just torching this article all day, like the last few days. Uh, on Twitter, just being like, I can't believe we're being replaced by these numbskulls, you know, because a lot of the quotes in the article are either A, not very thoughtful, or B, framed in such a way as to make them seem unthoughtful or uncritical. Um, but Patrick Klepek, let's start with you, and then I want to go to Miles. Like, what was your reaction when you read the article, and kind of what did you think it got right? What did you think it got wrong? Where did you think it could have uh, improved on things? The first thing I would say is if you've read the article, and I think most people, if you're listening to this, you're going to have a negative reaction to the article. Like I feel like I feel like that is probably a prerequisite Maybe. for uh, if you're an audience member here. But <laughs> a companion to that article is well, ne- negative reaction for what reason, Patrick? Let me ask that question. Uh, th- that you probably value like nuanced film criticism and the way these. Uh, however you want to characterize them, you know, uh, like pseudo critics, like influencers, like whatever term you want to use. Yeah. Sure. Um, like my guess is you're going to come out of the goal and be like, ah, we're all doomed. If this is where right, all of this right. is headed. That but is, that would, is a sense you get. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Ahead, yep. What I would say is there's a companion piece to that article that I did not notice until I went back and reread it this morning. That is like, it actually shows TikToks from a number of creators, eight, eight of them. I don't think all eight are in the article. And when you, if you were to just watch those videos, I think you would come away with like a much better reaction to what is actually being talked about here. That doesn't necessarily absolve all these people from the ethical concerns about 
um, like the partnerships they do with studios and what that, you know, the like vibes only like positive, like, but like the videos are fine. Like every one of the videos I watched were like, these aren't like, these aren't dumb dumbs. Like they had things to say about the movies, like could speak about like metaphor and context and nuance and like different decades of filmmaking. And they were fine. But I think the question I came away with was like, is this the reaction to this article? Is it about criticism or is it about money? Um, and those intermingle. I, I, those are not separate. But what we're like, it is. Ext- you're right, David, that um, those of us on this on this recording um, are able to make our money from from readers, from fans, from subscribers, and sidestep a lot of the concerns that are happening. And so, yes, there are ethical concerns with these uh, sort of. Like, I'll just use influencers because it's an easier term and, and sounds less pejorative than uh, some of the other ones <laughs> you, you can pick um, in terms of their partnerships with studios. But for old style critics, wherever they publish, whether it's in print or online or or, or in any other medium, uh, the economic squeeze on that style of uh, writing, uh, or if you're doing it in a podcast form, um, is is bad. And it's really bad right now. And so I can fully understand to have a, a story that frames this as like, just the lowest level of analysis or even just analysis isn't important. It's just about how you feel about the movie combined with they're making a bunch of money from it, or at least some, some slice of it is like, it's also worth remembering that the like chosen few that manage to make money in social media, whether it's on TikTok or YouTube or Twitch or wherever, like is a, it's a small percentage that is making a full-time living doing that. But I generally came away at more feeling bad about the state the economic state of criticism more than I am worried about TikTok uh, like influencers, like making my young kids like not understand the context of Oppenheimer. (laughs) Right. Right. I think uh, what is only mildly acknowledged in the article is that film criticism, TV criticism, games criticism largely is economically unsustainable for in large swaths of this country. Like there's, there's not a working business model for most people. Uh, and that's why there's vanishingly few people that can say they are a full-time one of those things. Miles McDonough, I know you have a lot of thoughts. Let's let's hit you up. What, what did you think of the article? Where did you think it was fair? Where did you think it went wrong? Yeah, I mean, like, I think the framing around criticism is where the article goes wrong. I think the mm-hmm. very idea that this is about criticism is sort of false because these are, they're not trying to replace critics. They say this, and yet the article frames it through these critical traditions when they try to go back and compare it to, like, previous critical turnarounds in different eras. It's like, this is not <laughs> I that was same rubbing dynamic. my temples. I was, I was that like, one, no, stop. What are you doing, article? Stop. <laughs> that one hurt, and I don't know who the academic was that they talked to that, like, agreed to be a part of this, but it made me hurt that they weren't able to convince this reporter to at least like abandon this framework what stood yeah, out is, to let me, me let me read let me read the yes. offending this is this got a lot of play on twitter okay so quote movie talk creators are not the first in the history of film criticism criticism to rebel against their elders in the 1950s francois Truffaut, jean-luc godard and other writers of the journal cahier du cinema disavowed the nationalism of mainstream French criticism, end quote. And then it, it goes on and gives other examples throughout history. But I think people were like, you're comparing movie talk to the Cahiers du Cinema? You know, and people were really not happy about that. Right. And again, that's not something that anybody in the article, none of these creators did that, right? Because that's not how they perceive of their work. And I think it's the capitalist dynamics of this, right? That are kind of, I think, so front and center in terms of how we understand it. Because like the thing about blogging is so like, look, I became a TV critic by sheer force of will. 
in 2007 when I just started <laughs> pretending I was a TV critic on the internet, right? And that was what you could do. You that could is basically the way just, to do it. The way just, to just, do it. You just decide you are something. And yes. the, we've, we've democratized distribution enough that you have access to a potential audience. And basically, I just went on Twitter got on blogs, went into Alan Sepinwall's comment section and just like <laughs> pretended that that's what I was. And the thing is that I was accepted into that group of people because that group of people collectively, TV critics at that point, were making their money writing for publications. So I think the issue then is this matter of, but at that time, like it wasn't about trying to make money. It was about community. It was about that kind of function. That felt like the kind of spirit of it. But now that we live in an algorithmic environment where platforms like TikTok and YouTube have incentivized the possibility of creating a career based on producing in those environments, the simple truth is that there aren't a lot of critics participating in that space. That when people come up and try to participate in those environments, it's not like there are a lot of film critics who are also trying to do the same thing. Whereas when I started blogging, there were, right? It felt like I was joining them in this space as opposed to operating in a separate space independent of that. And I think that that shift has created an environment where people are that much more skeptical of this environment because it is just this separate space. And I'm like, we need different spaces. There's no problem of having different spaces. That's not a crisis on any level. And yet when you position it this way as this oppositional battle of replacement of those types of issues, which is where we run into this conflict and start raising more of these questions that I think um, are not really the most important things to be discussing and yet are inherently because of the way the article is framed. Yeah, on that economic point, my sense is there is a bright red line for a lot of people uh, about accepting money from studios. Like the sense I get is if you accept money from studios to promote a work, from that point forward, your opinion on that work is invalid or it's not worth listening to or, or, or so on and so forth, which I think there is a lot uh, of reason to buy into that opinion, to be clear. Like, uh, yes, if, if uh, Warner Brothers pays you $30,000 to make a TikTok promoting Barbie, am I going to trust your opinion on Barbie as much as somebody who was paid $0, such as myself, David Chen, <laughs> to promote Barbie? You know, uh, probably not, probably not, probably less. I, I don't think, though, uh, and, and uh, let me let me elaborate uh, two, two related points to that. Point number one, uh, people who are really against that are coming from this old school mentality of there is a strict separation between church and state when it comes to editorial and advertising, right? Like, and Patrick, you worked at Vice, uh, probably one of the bigger publications that any of us has worked for. Uh, Miles, you worked for AV club. They, they've done some sketchy things lately. So uh, am I, but so like the reason I'm bringing up vice is because like my, my guess is that they had a pretty clear separation between those things. Right. Uh, that was more uh, what we brought to the table um, than, <laughs> than they did, which is not necessarily to be disparaging as much as yeah. they just didn't really, they didn't do a lot of entertainment um, based. Right. Uh, like, so th there were a lot of like ethical uh things laid out for like the people in the newsroom that, you know, it, a lot of vice was like politics and culture. And so, I mean, but I brought that, right. But even, but even the world of games, there are, um, there've been like these lines that blur, right. So like, this doesn't happen as much anymore. Now you get, you know, uh, when you play a video game, like I literally just got like a code for Starfield, right. Like, boom, that just dinged down my Xbox. And in the past, not five years ago, a little past that you'd have to fly out to some fancy hotel they put you in a room and you play the game for a week and then you go home and you and you write your piece. And a lot of people 
as budgets dwindled, could not afford to go on that trip. But the companies would say, well, hey, we'll cover your travel if you can come out here and play the game in the environment that we have deemed like best for you to experience it. Right. Is that considered, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, is, is that influence? You know, when you go to those things, like there's dinners, there's drinks, like, you know, yeah. like there are all these concerns and like, and like where, where does this, that's again, I think different than we're paying you to please say something, but I, these yeah. concerns have like junkets, like these things have con- have existed in even even in traditional media, even in, in traditional, traditional media, media. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and it blurs the line between are you a critic? Are you a journalist? Are you a blo- like what you identify with also then d- ends up determining what some of your ethical lines are like when people when you know, film bloggers, you know, or reporters go to sets, I guess is most of the time <laughs> they are not uh, paying for that like that. It's the studio taking them yeah. out. And so it's like there yeah. are. There are all there, the line between the producers of the art and the people writing about it has always had blurred lines that are sometimes strict and obvious, and then other times are trust that the person you're like consuming, like reading, listening to, like, do you trust me that whatever blurry lines are in front of me, I'm going to try and navigate them so that I can explain to you how I feel about a thing. Yeah, uh, I, I guess I bring that up because. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's like a bright red line. And I, I think, um, and there is this old school separation of church and state for a lot of people. Like they're, they're like, oh, the editorial should never interfere with advertising. I, I agree that that is like a good model for high quality editorial. But also, uh, I also ask the question, where has it gotten us? Where has it gotten us? Which is to say, our media industry is like in ruins, basically. Like it's not a a sustainable model for many people. It's an, It's a great ideal. But in practice, it has not played out in such a way that like uh, a lot of media companies can continue to make a sustainable living. Um, so I'm not saying, therefore, we should never do it or it's bad. But I'm just saying, like, in re- I'm just saying what the reality is, right? If you uh, want to do and- the work, like some people, like like you, David, can start a Substack and get people to pay to subsidize your living, <laughs> right? So that you can do the thoughtful work. Um, a lot of people can't do that. Like yes. we exist yes. in a world where in order to be a good, a, a full-time critic or journalist, or like for a lot of people, it also means essentially participating in the influencer economy, right? Yeah. Like people yeah. need to like me, find me entertaining, and I need to be good at social media. So they think I'm interesting. They'll pay me to do the thing that I want to do. And that yeah. is an extremely delicate balance. It asks of people you shouldn't have to be good on social media to be a good critic. And, on, those, and only then can you ha- compatible. Right. And only then can you have like an untainted right. viewpoint, untainted by any economic things. Miles, uh, I'm curious, you know, curious if you've dealt with this in your You've written for many publications. So I'm curious, like, yeah. if this is something you've dealt with. Yeah. I mean, the thing you have to sort of like conceptualize this way is like, I think about something like the Television Critics Association, right? Which is this very serious group of people who pre-pandemic twice a year would go out and like, you know, they have to cover their own costs for this trip. But like the networks just parade their content and their stars in front of them. They feed them. They hold lavish cocktail parties, right? They experience all these kind of perks. And if you were to start adding up the amount of swag, all these kind of things designed to promote these shows, there's there's an argument to be made that you shouldn't accept any of it, right? That like ultimately that you should be, like you say, entirely separated out um, from that environment. But like, that's not always completely realistic. But I think to the point, Patrick, that you're making, which is very critical, which is the idea is like, we come from a time 
where we were online early. We developed followings at a time where that's what happened, where we were able yeah. to then kind of navigate that and move from there. But today, to start to gain a following online requires you to make different kinds of content, requires yes. you to be different in terms of how you're engaging with that. There's a sort of different expectation. And the simple truth is that if you're following that expectation, if you're on TikTok, you're not on TikTok thinking, oh, how can I build enough of a following to then convince those people to like move off the platform to support me? Because ultimately, that's a that's. I mean, an some ask. of them are some of them are thinking about that, you know. Some for I sure, hope they're but... thinking about that. They should yeah. be thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, but they should be they are, for sure. <laughs> but they come from generations that perceive YouTube and TikTok as careers in their own right, where that yeah. is the career path. That's not part of some other career. That is the thing. And the challenge is that you are then beholden. You are in this precarious position, dependent on how the algorithm treats you. A. But also B, and I think kind of very difficultly, you have to make that decision of if I'm going to try to make a living doing this, if I'm going to quit my copywriting job, if I'm going to do the things to try to make this a career that you're seeing, what is the quickest path of action in that circumstance? And I think the simple truth is that it both shapes the kind of content they create and that invariably leads them to things like studio sponsorships as being the most economically feasible model that's been presented to them. And yeah. so I don't judge them for going down that path. I think the issue comes from if they then try to claim that they are either doing the job of a critic once into that position, or if they claim that they are some way replacing critics in that environment, that's where I think you start to be like, well, okay, like own what you do, own what you did. I'm not judging them for making that decision, but I think at the same time, they then cannot get too defensive if people go to them and sort of question the ethics of their actions or question their ability to sort of navigate into these spaces. Yeah, I think that's that's another big issue at play is how many of these people think they're critics? Not that many per the headline of the article, but I think a lot of them think they're occupying a space that is beyond or replaces the critic. That's probably what has a lot of people riled up, um, that there is something uh, that critics do that is different, better. Uh, more useful to society than what the people in the article are described as doing. Uh, I think that's what's what's causing a lot of uh, tension. So anyway, the uh, I was going to bring up two points. The first point is like, hey, um, bright red line, church and state people don't like, uh, in, you know, critics, quote unquote, taking money from studios. That that compromises your opinion. But here's the thing. The point I was going to make was um, because, like you said, Miles, people are responding to a much different set of economic incentives today. Uh, like, or let me put it a different way. The path that you and I took, like basically any of us took to get to where we are today is basically unavailable to most people today, right? Like if I was, if I told someone, start a podcast, host it for 12 years and then launch a Patreon page, right? First of all, that would 12 not 12 years work. is crucial. It's not 11. <laughs> it's not 13. Like, it's, it's, like, if you're trying to learn the lessons from me, listen to what I'm saying. It's uh, First of all, that would probably fail. You know, like, the, the, there's going to be whole, some, a whole other system of stuff going on uh, in 12 years from now. And so, like, the path we took is unavailable to us. So the people in this article are taking the path that is available to them today. Yes. Which is... Uh, making videos that get a lot of views. Uh, and then if somebody says, hey, I'll pay you $20,000 to make a video, it'd be like, all right, I can make my rent this month and next month because of that, right? Um, I do not think that that 
inherently makes those people who take who take those economic incentives not worth listening to. Like I, I think that it is possible for them to still have interesting, valid opinions, even if they take in money from studios. Um, but no, th- th- while that is also true, I don't all I don't think that they should claim to be completely unbiased, and I think they should be upfront with all their sponsorships and let readers and listeners and viewers make the decisions themselves about how much they believe in those things. I do think you're right, Miles. Like the, the difficulty comes when they think like, this is the same thing as before or better than. It's different. You know, what they're doing is different, but I don't think it's replacing or better than criticism, well, right? In and this case. is sort of the dynamic where I think sometimes there's this idea that like criticism is this one thing and then we have this sort of equivalent, but there's always been this sliding scale, right? Like I think all the time, like I wrote a paper when I was in grad school talking about like the emergence of the enthusiast press, right within television criticism and basically these were journalists who just never never implied an opinion like legitimately like they had nothing negative to say about anything they were just enthusiastic they were modeling fan behavior and i think certainly game journalism has a lot of sort of enthusiast press kind of operating within it obviously film much the same way and it's like these people exist they're journalists right they're not getting paid by studios to say these things but they are realizing that economically there is an audience for content that is enthusiastic right that is framed through a lens of i share your love of this thing and you want a space in which you want to do that I think a lot of TikTok content is stuff like Easter eggs, is stuff like, you know, you didn't, did you know this little thing, like this little detail, things that are just designed to sort of like deepen people's connection to something, but not in a way that is also critical or negative or that has the potential to kind of go through there. It's critical in the sense that we're doing critical analysis of something, but always from a particular sort of less of an objective point of view and more of a subjective one. And again, like you say, there's value to that content. I think the issue is that the article wants to frame this as like, well, this is all who anybody trusts now. Nobody pays attention to critics. People just (laughs) want regular Joes telling them how they feel about things. And I'm just like, word of mouth exists. Like we know, like we know people like to talk to people. This is not revolutionary. This has always functioned in these ways. The issue is there are now economic incentives that are kind of driving people in these directions. And so what you end up with for me in this article, there's some people who are already gone. They are studio shills and they should own that and they should acknowledge that that's what they're doing. And that's fine. I stand in no judgment of those people for making those choices. I wouldn't do it, but that's fine. The issue is the people I think that you highlight when you made a TikTok about this, who are kind of trapped in between, who are part of this article because they are part of this community of people being respected and valued for the takes that they're making. And studios are reaching out to them and they are relying on some studio revenue to create very different kind of sponsored content that is less like, I love this thing. It's the greatest thing ever. And more, I'm going to remind people it exists while doing some smart analysis of it, which is a very different kind of sponsored content, even if the sponsorship exists. And it's like, they are now trapped in this model of, well, how do you navigate that? At what point will you feel as though your only pathway is to abandon any kind of objective position, lest you sort of find yourself kind of operating here? I'm more concerned about those people than I am about the outright chills, because they're not doing the same thing. But you see people who kind of want to do what we did who want to kind of transition from this kind of like individual amateur professionalization pathway of criticism to find a pathway to whether it's a job, whether it's an opportunity, et cetera, and are just realizing that if they want to stay in these business models, like they're much 
better to take studio money or just go full anti-woke grifter. Like those are your actual career paths that have actually been presented <laughs> the, here. The one, one and two. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just, you know, Which button am I going to press? <laughs> that's it. That's, that's yeah. the actual tension. Whereas yeah. like we have yet to sort of see, can somebody over the long term navigate that bridge, that dynamic while also operating within this precarious economy? And I think that is a different set of questions than the one the article raises and which is where I think we're seeing the tension that emerged where immediately, I think there was a pajiba piece that was basically just like, yes. they're all grifters. They're all hacks. Like, why are we paying right. attention to any of this? And I'm just like, it's the broad brush of this where it's like, let's face it. I think a lot of people writing those takes aren't on TikTok and maybe aren't seeing things happen across their FYP and kind of seeing the dynamics and the conversations that are happening I think we need to take a more nuanced look at this, but at the same time, this is not a space that values nuance, which then yeah. creates the tension that we're sort of operating with. Yeah. Let me clarify. Let me like kind of piggyback off of what Miles is saying. Miles is, and I think the, the, if there's one takeaway from this conversation, it's that there's more nuance to, to these things than like these articles let on, right? Which is like, even in traditional media, there's tons of nuance about like, at what point is it marketing? At what point is it journalism? putting aside TikTok. And then within TikTok, that is also the case, right? Where some people are providing smart analysis without taking money from the studios. Some people are taking money from the studios and providing smart analysis. And some people are just really far gone and can basically be called chills. Uh, the article you're referring to, by the way, is call it what it is. Movie talk creators are corrupt. That is the headline of the Pajiba article. A lot of, and, and it sums up the tone of, I think, a lot of people who are prominent in the space right now, in the movie space right now, reading this article is like, um, yeah, those people are doing something different and worse than what we're doing, um, which I can understand why they feel that way. Uh, but I, I, I kind of side with Miles that there's a bunch of people on there who are really thoughtful, who are really smart, who do have interesting takes. Uh, but I do think that they are somewhat compromised because of the fact that they've taken money from studios. But I also understand it because that's one of the few ways you can actually do this for a living. Uh, and so it's a really tough tension, but I don't think that makes them all corrupt or invalid, you know, in their opinions or anything like that. Um, it's just unfortunate that it's one of the few ways that they can make a living doing this is by accepting money from students. Now, you could say you're not going to do that. And fortunately, all three of us here are privileged and fortunate enough to have that option, but not everyone does. And so it's like, do we it's hard to judge those people who are taking one of the few paths uh, you know, to being full-time creator. I do think that the fact that they have taken money from studios will make it harder, Miles, you know, as you said, like to get to the level of career that they are looking for or or for the respect of the peers that they are looking for, I think. But we'll see. Uh, Patrick Klepek, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on like what we've discussed here in terms of the path that, the, A, the, the, the nuance and gradations of being compromised <laughs> and be kind of the economic path for, for these people. Well, I think, look, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm 38. I've been doing some form of what I do since I was 14. The worst thing you can do as a critic, however long you've been doing it is to ignore where the audience is going. Right. Like mm -hmm. I started as a writer. I make most of my money these days as a podcaster. I started yeah. a newsletter in which I desperately said, would you pay me to keep writing? And people did, but you know what they're paying me a, f a fraction of what I get paid 
to podcast. Right. And that's like not to disparage the audience as much as just shows where a lot of the audience is going. It's like yeah. a warning to like critics is like, yes, I understand the anxiety here, but also this is where a lot of the audience is going. Yes. And if you want to keep doing this for a living to some level, you have to find a way to service what makes you happy and how you express yourself and also how the audience is experiencing that. And that parlays into my second point, which is that the form is extremely young. Um, and TikTok, will that be the thing in 10 years? Probably not. But that this, this short form like video, like th- some version of that is sticking in the culture. And this the personalization, like the deep hyper-personalization of of your intimacy with a person speaking about a work or whatever, that's not going away. And it's probably only going to become like even more intimate uh, for better and for worse um, going forward. And so I give a lot like a long leash to a lot of these creators because they're figuring out what even is, whether they call it criticism or not, like, but I'm going to use that term. What is it in this short form? Like, like, how do you even express the, like what do, things that we would sit and do over like a fifteen hundred word article? How do you do that in ninety seconds? How do you condense those thoughts and express? It? And I watch this tension occur in real time in my own history in, in video games, where where I I come from, in which the rise of like YouTube, like we call them YouTubers, which I think is a condescending term. Um, it was and it was used condescendingly by folks in my position. I am the old guard as much as I try, try to stay like in pole position with, with new formats. And um, there was this sense that like, they're not like us. They're not doing the real work. Right. And these exact right. same, this, this verse, this article was like things I've written about, had conversations about with all sorts of folks as I watched Twitch and YouTube rise um, and, and folks like PewDiePie and these other like people who focused games, like they were getting all the attention. They were getting all the money and those people still exist. But what also happened was a rich spectrum of creators that looked at the form of video, the form of podcasting, um, the more personality-focused stuff, and found a way to do excellent work. Is it necessarily going to be the people that are in this article? Maybe not. Maybe they don't aspire to be that. But what they're proving out on a base level is people want to watch people talk about movies. And if they can prove that out, there's going to be an audience for people to watch people think thoughtfully talk artfully about films. And so I consider it like broadly a positive, which is like, yes, like there's so many ways to like pick apart, like what is happening here. But like broadly speaking, people like movies. They want to hear like people, they like talk about those movies. And that is going to create a space for smart folks to come in and hopefully then make a living. Like, look, I know you like this creator, but like, come over here. Like, let's like talk about the shot in this film. And like, I think... There is a space that David, I get the sense like that's been some of your experimentation in TikTok is like, where is the space to have like smart conversations about these these topics? Um, And I do I do think they're proving out that there's fertile ground, even if they're not necessarily hitting the bar that like it is easy to see from um, our perch uh, having like done this for, you know, uh, you know, essentially decades now. What is surprising to me is every single time there has been a change in medium for the commentary, there's always a backlash. There's always like they're not doing they're not doing the work. They're not as this is not as high quality. It's not the same thing. And then over time, it becomes what is the respected uh, and dominant way of communicating in that field. Um, and I do think you know short form video has the possibility of achieving that. Uh, we'll see what happens. But if you're going to ask me, here's the thing, because I'm supported by listeners such as paid members of DecodingTV.com, 
I, I kind of, I, I was talking to my wife yesterday. I was saying like, I basically made this video, which prompted Miles to text me, um, uh, kind of like trying to support some of these folks I know on TikTok because like the TikTokers have had a bad time recently. Okay. This, this, the SAG after strike has meant that like a lot of them have, you know, uh, don't have a source of income they used to have. And now with this article, everyone's basically shitting all over them. And I think a lot of them actually do quality work. And uh, so I made this like TikTok to support them a little bit. And I was saying to my wife, I feel like I've achieved the level of respect that I'm going to have in the field of like movies, maybe not TV yet, but like certainly in movies um, for better or worse. Like it's not going to go much higher or lower. You know what I'm saying? So like, so like whatever it is, it's pretty stable. So I feel like I can come out and kind of support this people, these people that everyone's shitting on. Um, but also if you ask me to bet money about which one of these people is going to be, which groups are going to be re- relevant to millions of people in five or 10 years, I'm probably going to bet on the people that have mastered how to reach millions of people today. Uh, and that's not to say anything about how quality their content is or how economically compromised they are. But it is saying about like how effectively they can reach people and how effectively they can make a model that is function an economic model that is functional for them, which has eluded much of the industry. Right. So uh yeah, go ahead, Miles. Well, and what I was gonna say is like to me, like a whole point is that by building these subscription models, we have sort of like sidestepped the pressures that a lot of traditional critics yes. are facing, which are, you know, these giant media conglomerates or you know, venture capital firms who have bought their publications and are now telling them, Why aren't you reaching millions of people with your written film criticism? And it's just sort right. of like because it was never designed to do that. That was never <laughs> the goal of what we were trying yeah. to accomplish. And as a result, yeah. you're not you're asking us to try to like force that in that place so it's like you know i build a subscription model for written tv criticism of us i'm the one doing in many ways the most old-fashioned thing right and Mm -hmm. then i'm going all the way back to what was kind of debra in 2007 and kind of bringing it back because i'm specifically targeting a niche of people who want that back right who don't want tiktok who don't want youtube who want a very traditional notion of community of reading these reviews going into the comments and feeling like they can discuss these things without having to navigate all this newfangled technology. And there are absolutely niches that you can operate in, right? Where you can kind of say, I want to find a group of people that want to talk about things a certain way and make that happen. But if we're talking about the mass, if we're talking about this notion of reaching the most possible people, we're never going to just like, we can't undo the changes that have happened in terms of how those audiences function. And if I think about my students, undergraduate students, I'm a professor, like if I think about what they're paying attention to, it's just like, yeah, they're finding things on TikTok and on Instagram. And that's where they're going to observe these things. And we want film criticism we want game criticism tv criticism we want it to operate in those spaces in whatever way it can but i think what we're running into too is a fundamental generational divide of just like no i don't expect the 50 year old critics right operating it's not an offense to 50 year olds that's not even that old but i'm just saying right (laughs) the gen ed i don't expect the 38 year old game critics yes what you're saying miles (laughs) in game criticism yeah sure um but like the gen x critics are not going to suddenly be on tiktok and i don't Mm -hmm. really think anyone's expecting them to and if there are other publications out there where it's like you've got to make this happen it's not going to happen But I think it's this question of we need to understand and embrace this younger group of people who are going to be doing something different. And I think it's then a question of like, Dave, what you did in that TikTok was take on a mentorship role, right? To sort of acknowledge, hey, I see you, I am part of these groups, and I can make that happen. 
And that's what happened to me when I was trying to break into TV criticism and people chose mm-hmm. to take me seriously and people welcomed me into that. And yet, but I look back and think, okay, but like I had no temptress, right? There wasn't this option available to me that was something different. There wasn't this theoretically lucrative path that I otherwise could have taken instead right. of just continuing to do it for free for a while, bumping around some freelance stuff and ultimately framing it as a side career and not a primary one, understanding that journal- the issue of journalism was dying. Given all of that, <laughs> right? Given that environment, I was never at risk of sort of like having this decision in this pathway. So right. as we're now thinking, it's like, well, how can we, you know, cultivate like actual criticism and kind of thoughtful commentary without it falling down these pathways? There really is, we have very little at our disposal to offer them like what are we offering them in exchange like what can we provide what is like what is the path for yeah w- w- in which they can do the thing that we think is high quality while still making a living and it's like there's not much to offer them you know like no it's not like there's like five thousand of these jobs available just take one <laughs> um it's it's not that's not the situation so no uh it's it's a challenging you know the, the offer is live in poverty and and have a pure opinion which by the way is what many of the critics who are tweeting against this article have done, right? Yeah. Like, uh, no, I, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not trying to be glib. Like, I, I think it's actually very terrible, the fact that we don't have a vibrant, thriving, economically sustainable criticism, uh, arts criticism going on in the United States. That but it's just sub- like- That it can subsidize, like, hey, this is not going to be a big traffic driver. This is not going to optimize right, for SEO. Right, This right. is going to be, like, like you know, you said, like, this is going to, to be society. better for the culture. Yeah, it's right. good for society, but it's, it's like, and it's actually actively, it's okay if it, like, it can yeah. just be yeah, that yeah. and like have a couple thousand people read it and enrich their lives. And if you are, if you are in that camp where like that's what you want to do, the unfortunate reality, which is again not you being glib, even as we like chuckle, is just that that's extremely hard. The, it's, the yeah, people, it's the people that can do that for a living, dwindles. Every single day, like when I was laid off a couple of months ago, uh, I got a bunch of that. That sucks when that happened to you, and not a single like job offer, job <laughs> right. in, like zero, right. none. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's because even for somebody like in a senior position, that in theory, like I'm in the club, like there's someone that just opens another door for me. Like there wasn't a door for me well, let's, to open. Let, let, let's be clear, you know what Patrick is not saying is that Patrick is highly respected in his field, right? Yeah. Like, Patrick is very well regarded by large swaths of people. And it was difficult for him to get a job, you know? And and so it's like, uh, it, it, for somebody just coming up, it's basically impossible. Um, and so anyway, I, I want to close by reading this quote from Todd Vaziri, one of my favorite online personalities. He says, quote, My thoughts on movie talk? There's dreadful movie takes and analysis on every effing platform, including including unintentional and deliberate misinformation about how movies are made. This has been going on since cinema was born. Look for the smart, insightful folks. They're out there, end quote. I do want to emphasize the first part of his sta- statement. There's lots of terrible movie talks out there, like movie talkers out there, like god-awful people that I would not even want to converse with, let alone watch their content. Um, so, uh, I don't want to downplay that, but there's also, as Todd says, lots of smart, thoughtful people out there. And, uh, I think it's worth keeping an open mind. Uh, and I think that's kind of, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think right. the, how I would put this, Dave, is that um, you know we keep open minds, but as long as studios have open wallets, we're going to keep having this conversation. Yes, it, it, it's the economic, it's the money from the studios thing that really clouds the whole thing. It makes the whole thing much more complicated. It's not just like we're moving on to a different medium. It's like we're moving on to a different medium, and also millions of dollars are pouring into this medium right now, and it's hard to not accept it. I will say I have not accepted it. Have I been offered it? No. <laughs> would I? Would I accept you didn't have it? Have to if say I were? that part, Dave. Like you could have just left that as a mystery. My, you know, I was talking to my wife about this. I'm like, yeah, it's very easy for me because I have not been offered it. She's like, but here's the thing, David. You would be a terrible person to offer this money to. And I'm like, why? And she's like, because you're a horrible liar. yes uh, i think you should go see uh transformers rise of the beast because of blah blah blah. it's like it just is like i I wouldn't be able to do it it would be hard for me to do it you know it'd be hard for me to have any sincerity at all i'm at this phase of my career where thanks to the very uh, gracious support of patrons and so on um i can just have my own opinions that's like a luxury it's like a privilege to be able to like have your own opinions uh and not have it be clouded by any external factors um, so, uh, I guess this is just a way of saying thanks to all of our supporters out there. Right. Yeah. And hopefully you found this conversation interesting. Uh, I want to say thanks to miles McNutt. Check out his Substack at episodic medium.substack.com. I consider it essential reading miles. Thanks for chatting today. Thank you. And of course, Patrick Klepek, we're going to be covering Ahsoka next week here on decoding TV, but check out his podcast remap radio, as well as his, uh, cross play Substack. Patrick, thanks for the chat today. Thank you. I'm David Chen. See you guys very soon. Bye.